This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. You're listening to Sustainable Lens Resilience on Radio. The show is co-hosted by me, Samuel Mann, and Shane Gallagher. Shane's not here tonight. When we started the show, one of the things that we said was that we wanted to be able to produce resources for any given discipline that if somebody was to say, oh, but I'm an accountant, what's the sustainability thing got to do with me? We could say, here are some people that you might like to listen to. And over the last few weeks, we've been running compilations exploring what different people have thought about different things that change or transformation or or positive mindsets. Uh, last week, last week we rummaged around and looked at changing mindsets. And I was challenged by somebody after the the show to how hard would it be to produce primers for those different areas, those different groups. Um, so that's a good challenge let's see what we can find that would be of use to somebody thinking about sustainability in business we're going to start with Oliver Milliner who was then the head of sustainability for Kathmandu of my role Um, so I have kind of five key focus areas Uh, and just to be clear um, Within the sustainability, there's only one sustainability specialist role within the organization, but we also have a a corporate social responsibility manager who's purely focused on workers' rights. So what we have is this sort of network within the organization. Um, So my first kind of focus area is driving the sustainability plan and strategy and working sort of across departments to help um, either advise or report on areas that they're working on. So a good example would be um, I would work with um, this, this corporate social responsibility manager who's purely focused on workers' rights uh, within the supply chain. And, um, you know, he's absolutely specialized and a guru within that field. And then um, either I give him information that he needs for reporting um, or I ask him for information that get, get pulled into like a GRI sustainability report. So we have um, like a governance team um, of around 15 people but then we also have this sort of wider sort of that that network actually drives mass awareness across the organization mm-hmm. so that works with you know products uh, design team uh, works with the uh, regional managers the operations team finance team HR uh, and a lot of people within marketing as well so that's kind of my first KPI is sort of working with that network of people within the organization to drive and report on or help advise sustainability. Uh, So it's very, very cross-functional. The second area, which is kind of a key area for me, is uh, project managing the annual sustainability report. So uh, that's on our website, and um, people can go on there and have a look at 
Uh, so we do each year, and the report uses the Global Reporting Initiative standards, so um, it's a framework. Um, and it's comprehensive. It's not a small document. Yeah, it's pretty chunky. It's about, yeah. Uh, what I liked about it is that it, it, it doesn't position it as we've got this perfect. No, yeah. And it does position it as there's hard choices to be made here. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for noticing that. It's absolutely, uh, you know, when we, we have a copywriter who helps us in sort of telling the stories in a really clear way. And we, we sort of found that being honest uh, and, and talking about the challenges but also the successes at the same time, um, which is the truth, mm-hmm. um, it resonates so much is so much more with um, the people reading it. So, and we send that to staff and customers and um, pretty much all our key stakeholders, suppliers. Um, and you know, usually the feedback we hear is that it's it's great to have an organisation that's so transparent in that mm-hmm. space. So, um, yeah, the, the report is it's a really good. It's an annual report. We've been doing that for since um, 2011, uh, 2011. So, um, we're kind of pretty good at reporting <laughs> reporting now. Uh, and it's you know it's very kind of it's quite backward facing. It, it looks at the, the past financial year and sort of what we've done in that space, um, but it's pretty it's, it's pretty detailed. Do you think that influences behaviour, both in a positive way? His you know let's do this because it's going to be a really good story, but yeah. also we can't do that. Imagine if it got on the front page of the paper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It's, it's going to be in conflict with what we yeah. said. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, sometimes when we have. Um, some maybe some case studies or the way we've written it might be a little bit too radical in terms of transparency. Um, you know, there's. Uh, I think the way that things are framed or, or written can have a bit of an impact, whether it's really negative, um, whereas it's more about kind of learning from situations and, and, and continuous improvement. Um, so we have to, you know, we have to be transparent as an organisation. GRI, that's one of the key principles is around transparency. So in order to be compliant within the the stand within the framework, we have to um, report on um, sort of any incidences or areas where, um, yeah, whatever happened. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's quite a, it's it's quite an intense process uh, working across the organisation to pull it to pull it together. Uh, it's really interesting as well, just sort of getting to understand the details of it and um, uh, working with a storyteller who sort of helps bring it to life and then writes it and then puts it in the report and then we work with a design agency to sort of produce the infographics or the imagery to uh, to make it look interesting and readable so. Oliver Milliner there talking about using structures such as the triple bottom line or, or CSR to really get at the not the technical details of that but what's it about it's about transparency and it's about communication and it's about engaging with systems that are that are fair so let's look at who takes that being fair more um let's talk to will watterson about fair trade fair trade chocolate and it's simply meaning that more of the the value is going to the growers uh than to the other players in the supply chain so you said that ideally fair trade's going to do itself out of a job as you've just started working there hopefully that's not soon <laughs> <laughs> i would be delighted if uh if, if we got, did ourselves out of a job in the in the next few years but there's a lot of work to be done i mean fair trade i think accounts for uh, uh, 
thinking coffee, one percent roughly. No, sorry, cocoa, roughly one percent of the world cocoa market. You know, so Fairtrade cocoa has grown hugely in New Zealand and globally um, over the years, but it still only accounts for a very small fraction of the global market. So there's a lot of work to be done in ensuring that 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 growers of these products all around the world uh, are paid fair price and are able to uh, to be empowered and and have opportunities and create a better future for themselves. There's a lot more work to be done. So you talked about the ability to, to look in the, the factory window and even locally people wouldn't appreciate you actually going and looking in the factory <laughs> window. Are they, you know, it must be challenging for organisations wherever they are farmers, cooperatives such as Daniel's, to be so open? Yeah, I I think um, certainly if you're growing coffee in the remote highlands of Papua New Guinea, that's a, that's a different equation to, you know, if you're making shoes around the corner and you can pop around the back. But um, at the end of the day, I think this is where where consumers are heading in terms of their awareness, that consumers are becoming aware that there's a there's a cost uh, involved in the things that they they consume, the things that they buy. There's an environmental cost. There are people behind it, um, and there's a growing demand for more and more transparency. Now, where that transparency uh, occurs, how it's created, who bears the the cost or the effort of that 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 that's a great question. Uh, and in terms of in terms of fair trade, we try and make sure that you know as little of that resource and time and cost is borne by the, the the cooperative and the farmers themselves, and it's more you know by us and by the the companies down the line. Um, but there is a lot of effort and time involved in creating transparency, and I think if that's what's right, that's just what has to happen. And um, the more it becomes common, the the uh, the more the systems for it will evolve, become easier, become cheaper, and easier to implement, and, and that kind of thing. How do you define fair? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? What is fair? Um, when it comes to you know fair trade, uh, the fair trade minimum price for for a product is is agreed upon with the with the producers and the farmers themselves. So we work with the farmers in each region in each each industry and say, look, what would it what would a fair price be for your product so that you can you can actually have a sustainable life and put your kids through school and pursue the kind of opportunities that you want to pursue. And the great thing about the fair trade price is it it it's stable. You never ever fall below it. Now, as the world if the world market price happened to spike and go up, the fair trade price would follow that, um, and would follow the world market price up. But when the world market price crashes and goes right down, the fair trade price never goes below that minimum. So it's like a safety net. Who's funding that? Uh, so um, the consumer essentially is, is funding that by buying. Fairtrade coffee, for instance, you are um, you're buying from a you know a, an importer who has paid the fair trade price for for that for that coffee, um, and and that's consistent. So the consumer at the end of the day is 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 paying for that. Yeah. When we talked to Will, we had the Daniel that he was referring to in that uh, conversation. Daniel Kinney, a coffee producer from Papua New Guinea. Yes, I mean, like you have to pick, you know, this individual uh, cherries. So you need plenty of people to do all the picking. 
Okay, they are not big, you know. Uh, fruits like apple, oranges, these are little tiny, you know, cherries. So you need plenty of people to get all the cherry together into the bag. Is it a dr- quite dry fruit to start with? No, it, yeah, it's it's got this uh, good um, uh, red coat, you know, cover. And uh, when you pick it, you know, you get uh, sugary juice you know, coming out of it. It can be sticky on your hands sometimes. Okay, and what yeah. do you do with it next? When we pick it, um, we take it to the you know our pulp station. We have our end pulpers there, so we pulp all the red skin out. And in there, you see this uh, dicotyledon seeds, and um, we uh, put it in the uh, fermentation box just to allow it to break down, so that you um, this um, what we call the micellus on the coffee. They break down, and you can it's. It makes it easier for you to wash it and clean it up, and it will be really, you know, clean. So when you dry it, you have this sound uh, parchment coffee beans. And then from there, you take it to the, um, the processing plant where you remove the, the husk. And then what comes out is a green bean, and that's the, uh, that's the stage where we uh, bag them and export it overseas. So the buyers overseas would be buying parchment, uh, green beans, sorry, from us. When you say green beans, are they green colored? That's right. They look green. When after when you remove that yellow husk, uh, the bean inside, you know, look more or less green, so we call it green bean. Yeah. And what term, time does it turn black? Oh, it's when you put it to the roaster. Oh, okay. <laughs> you roast it and then it becomes black. And is that process the same the world over? Yeah. That's the same process. And at what point in that process do the traditional corporations get involved, the international corporations? Do they buy they Nescafe or whoever it might be, they buy the, the green bean, do they? Or do they buy it earlier on? Uh, they buy the green bean, yeah. Yeah. So that all that processing work of removing the husks and stuff has to happen locally? That's right, yeah. Yeah, most um, most cooperatives do not own a processing mill, so they would be selling their coffee in the form of parchment. That means it has this uh, yellow husk, and then the exporters buy it and they process it. But for our case, we have our own processing mill, so we process and get rid of that husk, um, and then we supply only the green bean to the exporter. So what started you thinking about setting up a cooperative? Well, firstly, because we wanted to have a, have a voice for the, the growers because there were numerous growers and they were scattered. So we thought that if we get into group, we could have a voice, a legal voice for the, and then we could do things, you know, like get registered. And if we have to, you know, do things as a group, that, that would give us, you know, the, the advantage, you know, to, to grow, uh, get, get together as a group and, we can export our coffee. So if we have any issues, you know, we can address it as a group so we got more weight. Uh, if we have to do it individually, then uh, we might not have that kind of, you know, power in, the, in negotiation or that kind of thing. So. And the idea of that more weight was to do what? To What were you trying to improve in that process? I th- I think we were trying to improve the the communication and the negotiation for price. Presumably, you thought it was too low. 
the price. Yeah, I mean, like the exporters were not coming clear on the kind of price they were receiving uh, abroad, overseas. So we wanted to group ourselves so that uh, we could uh, get into some some form of a system of trade. And there we found fair trade. And in this system, you know, we are given the opportunity uh, where transparency is one of the ma- you know, main standards in the in the fair trade system. So in that way, you know, the exporter and the, the producer will know exactly uh, how much that coffee would cost. So we can do a press price breakdown. Uh, so everything is done transparently. So we don't feel uh, have this kind of funny feeling like we've been cheated or something along the way. It must be hard knowing how hard you're having to work to grow these things and doing all that processing to then see the the price of a cup of coffee on the street. That's right. It's um, it's really, you know, uh, intensive work. Uh, a lot of work is put into trying to get the coffee into green bean. You know, you have to look after the coffee tree itself. Then you have to pick it. You have to pulp it. You have to wash all the, these mitchellers after fermentation away. You have to dry them. You have to bag them. You carry them. You walk, you know, distances. You sell it to the buyer, and then you have to transport it along this rough road, you know, rugged roads, all the way to the market point. So, really, there's plenty of work. So you want to be rewarded, you know, properly, you know, at the end of the day. What sort of price are we looking at for a a, a kilo of that green bean? Um, it varies, you know. the The market price, you know, fluctuates. It goes up and down. At one stage, it was at um, uh, 10 kina would be like $5. And then uh, right now, it's like um, 7 kina, so like $3.50. So it it goes up and down within this range. Yeah. And how many coffees would that make? How many drinks? Do you know how many drinks that would make? Oh, no no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But it would be plenty of coffee. The impact of the individual coffees that we buy, of course, adds up to all the coffees that everybody buys. What am I doing talking about coffee? I don't even like coffee. I like tea. But the point remains. But we could skip past that individual consumer perspective and look at or talk to the people who are responsible for or have influence over the purchasing decisions of the whole country. Mike Simmons was then Sustainability Manager of Foodstuffs. We talked to him in 2013, and I've been meaning to get somebody back from Foodstuff because I do know that lots of the things that we talked about with Mike um, have since been implemented. I've talked to a couple of people about what to, to ask you about. Some <clears> people <throat> were quite excited about things like the the work that you're doing in reducing impacts of the, the shops themselves, and mm. things like the, the wind power and the yeah. natural lighting. Yeah. Is that sold as a sold to those businesses as business efficiency, or is it is there a bigger picture? Yeah, I, I think um, fortunately a lot of our a lot of our operators, you know, the grocers who own the shore stores, um, are are very attuned to the um, to the wider benefits of these types of innovations. So when we all look to build a new store now, um, we'll look to integrate natural lighting. Where that was certainly not the case, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, we'll look to integrate lighting control systems so when the sun does come out and comes through our skylights, the actual lights dim down within store. Um, we'll look to integrate natural refrigerants where possible, as we've already discussed. Um, 
so yeah you'll always find that you know there's bike parking outside the front of store as well um, we're looking at utilizing new innovations such as LED lighting within stores now to reduce the, the actual carbon profile of the store again um, so it's continually evolving basically but uh, each of the new innovations has to be um, has to be trialed and tested um, in order to be able to we can confidently recommend it to our operators to actually say look this is good we've trialed it this is the payback period these are the environmental benefits um, and we're looking to communicate that um, increasingly to the actual public because at the moment some of those issues certainly aren't probably recognised within the public arena and that's a missed opportunity as far as I'm concerned. What do you think is the, the future of this sort of stuff? Is, I imagine you would see it as being sort of central to the, to the business. Do you think it is being seen? And, I'm, and what I'm thinking of is the, the extent to which Marks and Spencers has totally thrown itself behind whatever that was. Plan A. Plan A because there's no plan B. <laughs> that's right. We're not seeing New Zealand businesses moving quite to that space, are we? Yeah, I don't think we were, we were quite uh, probably in the position that Marks and Spencer's was with regards to its stretch supply chains and that going back, you know, 10 years ago. I, I was fortunate enough to sit down with the Plan A team this summer, actually, in London and uh, talk through um, some of the things that they've done and they mm -hmm. haven't all worked out, but right. they've been very honest about that. Um, but they've um, they've certainly out of all the big supermarket chains, they've been the one that have really demonstrated the business credentials around moving forward in sustainability, and um, which is witnessed by you know the turnaround in Marks and Spencers that you've seen you know over the last 10, 15 years. So um, they've they've tested out and they've gone out a limb on a, on a quite a few issues, you know, and they've tested out the business viability of, of doing specific programs and they've made them work because not all of them have and they were honest about that. But um, but they've demonstrated that it, it makes good business sense. I suppose that's the bottom line, you know, to actually be more sustainable and to communicate that. And I think where the difference is with Marks and Spencers, they've really made the most with regards to media as well, of everything they've actually done, you know, where they've got in high-profile celebrities like Joanna Lumley to, to, um, to front a lot of the programmes as well. But um, at the end of the day, it's, it's really benefited the environment, it's benefited the local communities there as well. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's some, that's where retailing, supermarket retailing is certainly going. And that's driven a lot by consumers' expectations and more and more transparency that they actually require with regards to um, where the products are made, how they're made, what's actually in them as well. And you producing a triple bottom line or? We're not at that point. Report? Yeah, we're not at that point yet, as I say, because we've, um, we've only been at it probably a couple of years now. So um, we're still collecting data and we're putting the programs in place. Um, but I'd like to see certainly within the next couple of years that um, the foodstuffs is be able to articulate, you know, through our annual reporting um, exactly what we're doing and the benefits that it's actually delivering to the public. How do you think you communicate that this is a, a journey, not a destination? And my question is, is, as soon as you come up and say, we're on the sustainable journey, mm. somebody is going to point out how many plastic bags you're yeah, using, yeah, sure, how, yeah. how big the car yeah. parks are, or whatever. Yeah. So you kind of want to know when. Well, you, you are and you're not, because um, if you went the whole hog, and you took a lot of risks and it didn't work out, you wouldn't be in business in a couple of years' time. So you wouldn't be able to deliver any benefits. So it's truly not sustainable. So um, 
so from that perspective, yeah, it, it is an absolute journey. And um, but we're making substantial incremental steps now in different areas, and you also have to focus on different priorities as well. Where there was a lot of focus on ozone depleting uh, gases a few years ago, um, there's that situation is is uh, thankfully not quite as urgent now. Um, that a lot of the um, implementation that was done a few years ago has addressed that problem, and now so the priorities changed away from ozone depleting refrigerant gases into uh, refrigerant gases now that have an impact on on global warming and on climate change. So you have to have a certain amount of flexibility built into your program to be able to respond to uh, different um, change in media focus, as well as the um, true impacts around your actual business from an environmental sense. Do you find yourself responding to quite sort of short-term things? That sometimes, yeah. Someone's picked up something? Yeah, yeah sometimes. Um, um, but I suppose if you'd, um, you'd look at an issue such as um, uh, palm oil or if there's a particular focus on uh, sustainable fishing, yeah, so we certainly have to sometimes put a little bit more resource in that particular area, you know, to respond to it. There is a lot of there was um, in the media a couple of years ago, Greenpeace picked up on uh, one of our suppliers of, um, of sanitary tissue and uh, there had to be a focus on that in the short term. We had to sit down with the supplier and work through um, a preferred course of action um, which required them actually getting um, a recognised certification for their product. And, um, and that and that's so yeah there are instances where there's you know much media attention and greater public expectation that we as a retailer should be doing something about it and we do have to be able to respond quickly on particular issues and then there's other issues you know such as just reducing areas such as reducing the amount of waste that goes to landfill that is just a continual ongoing program of, of tweaking and improvement every year you know things like the the green peas the fish yeah color thing yeah do you see those in the supermarkets? It's always a difficult question to answer when each of our owner yeah. operators, you know, make a lot of <laughs> their own decisions. Of yeah, they're, so, not, they're not banned or? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Not in our supermarkets, but but we're fortunate in in with regards to uh, fish supply and sustainable fisheries. That is that um, our economic zone down in New Zealand is um, is certainly not as it's a, it's a large economic zone in fishing terms. We have the quota management system that's, that's still looked upon, although it, I recognise that it has its critics, it's still recognised in the industry globally as probably the best in the world. And we don't have the sort of um, depletion of, of, of main species that they've experienced in the Northern Hemisphere. So although that we're very, very conscious that it's an incredibly important area that we look to, um, that we look to manage properly as a retailer, um, there's not quite the same... Uh, urgency that there certainly was a few years ago up in the northern hemisphere, but we um, but we talked to the likes of um, WWF and Greenpeace around such issues. Um, that's an area where we are actively collecting data at the moment um, to see what species. Um, well, we're aware of which species we're selling, um, but we're just constantly monitoring it to make sure that um, uh, we're doing what is recognised as, uh, as, as the right, right thing within that area. Mike there is talking about the relationship between business sense, communication, customer expectations, and about managing the sets of values. And I know somebody who can talk a lot about values is Phil Osborne.
I, I think it, it totally is. It's always more than just the coffee, you know. Like if it was fun, if it was functionally a coffee, you know, what what's the fun- functional value of a coffee? Um, why why are we consistently we we've agreed as a society in Dunedin that a coffee is what what's the worth of a coffee? Four dollars, four dollars fifty. Um, the cost of a coffee significantly lower than that. We can make a coffee at home. In fact, many of us have got our home espressos. Um, and in fact, that's one of the things that we need to think about is the customer's experience has now changed significantly, whereas it used to be that we had to go somewhere to get good coffee. Now good coffee is available to us at home. We have to think about why Why would why would somebody come and buy the same coffee that they can get and make themselves and even put it in in your own keep cup? Because remember now we're, we're providing the cups as well now, um, which is going to be – that's going to change. We're going to have to go back to um, disposable cups. I hadn't actually thought about that. Um, yeah, so – so companies really need to think about what is the value that they're providing beyond the product. So I think it's wrap around more than tag on. We've been initially talking about level two and level three and presumably two, but do you think those sorts of changes will stick? I think there is going to be a real need to think about changes that will stick, you know? I can't. I was talking earlier today to somebody. You imagine that you are going to be treating your customer to frictionless service. Yeah, the convenience of app ordering, the the fact that it's going to be ready when they when they turn up, um, the fact that you're going to deliver it to the door. How are you going to? not deliver that level of service in the future and and not have to deal with customer dissatisfaction, you know? So some of this behaviour that is going to become embedded through the various lockdown phases will be expected to be the new normal, um, you know? So I, I think I was listening to the doctors um, talking about how their world has changed and how... Last night I was hearing about the fact that doctors weren't charging, didn't feel like they they should could charge as much for the um, the audio visual consultation now that they were doing rather than having come into their surgeries. And so if the doctors were thinking that it's got a different value and the patients are thinking it's got a different value, why am I going to come and sit in a waiting room for half an hour? Um, out of my day when I make an appointment when you when I now know that you can do that same service delivery online without me waiting and I don't even have to leave my desk. So I think the lockdown has opened our eyes and and sped up the adoption of technology that has been sitting there for a long time in the background, but that we've been reticent about adopting in a number of industries. And so we've we've sort of been thrown into the deep end. Um, I can imagine that our use of technology will become more effective or efficient in the future because we we we're just learning about how to use it. But I certainly 
worry about people who think that it's going to just be able to go back to how it was in terms of customer expectation anyway. That notion of the values and the business comes together in concepts around social enterprise. And I was in London and I went to Goldsmiths University a couple of years ago and there I found Richard Hull and Roxanne Pursuit. I thought they can take you back to their, to their um, civil society organisations. How do you model the integration tensions, whatever, between the, the value stuff and the, the pure business stuff? Actually, I think the value stuff's more pure. But... There isn't one way of modelling it because, because the... Um, and, I mean, this is why, right from the start, right from the earliest, earliest, really the very first lectures, the very first sessions we have, um, we say that... Uh, uh, far as we're concerned, cooperatives are an important type of social enterprise and the, 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 um, with, a, with a cooperative, the social is internal to the organisation uh, it's internal to the, to the members of the co-op um, and whether that's a workers' co-op or a consumers' co-op or a community co-op uh, or a food co-op or a housing co-op um, so uh, the, the the way you balance the social and the business is is uh, you know really depends on what type of um, what you know yeah what type of social enterprise or social business um, you've got I mean so uh, one of the types of social enterprise um, uh, is an enterprising non-profit. So that's, you know, a chari- and it applies mainly to North America. So these are non-profits, ch- you know, charities who have become more enterprising. Um, and, uh, um, you know, f- for them, the, the charitable purpose has not changed. Um, and they just find different ways of um, raising money to pursue that purpose. Um, so I would say to the students, it's really about understanding your position and being able to de- defend it and explain it. Um, so it's managing this tension amongst within yourself. I think one of the struggles they often have in the first few months is they read widely and desperately looking for the right answer. As you said, they were, mm-hmm. they, everyone's trying to define social enterprise and social entrepreneurship. And I think ultimately you have to kind of come to your own robust understanding of it and defend it. And of course, the the internal social workings that social actually needs to be practiced internally and not just externally mm. is a vital message. And that aligns it nicely with that sustainability story, mm. the, the internalizing the externalities. Mm-hmm. But is it hard to compete against somebody else that's not? Well, of course, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the um, and and one of the reasons why you know one of the sorts of things that we um, talk more about in sort of advanced topics later on in the course is what sort of policies do we need to support the social enterprise world? And so there are policies around, for instance, procurement to try and persuade um, uh, organisations when they are. 
you know, purchasing uh, goods or services to have a mind to the social, the positive, the positive social value um, of, in addition to the, the value for money. Of, of you know the goods or you know the, the companies that you're dealing with. Depends which game you're playing and how you're competing. So of course it's very difficult to compete on financial market terms with a purely financial market oriented organisation. And you also have, if we're saying that social enterprise is the new normal for business, then you have big businesses realigning themselves and claiming the social enterprise identity, if not brand. And how do you compete with those? How do you spot it? How do you spot whatever you call the social enterprise equivalent of greenwash? <laughs> uh, well, uh, purpose washing is the, is the equivalent. I, I heard it the other day for the first time. I hadn't heard it before. Um, uh, so, so these are you know, companies who say they have a purpose. And, and is it just marketing? Um, are people coming out of school with social purpose literacy no but they're coming out with um, social purpose intent Um, I was at an event earlier this year um, uh, talking with um, an organisation that runs entrepreneurship hubs in schools and colleges all over Spain and they've got something like 50 different centres all over the country and they said that about half of the, of the young people that they work with have a social or environmental purpose um, you know, for, for their enterprise which I think is stunning uh, I, I think you know, educational institutions are being really slow to recognise the, the, the drive that young people have got uh, you know, we're not providing for it I do like that notion of social needing to be practised internally as well as externally. And I think we might come back and explore purpose washing at some time. Let's see who can take it beyond that theoretical. Let's talk to somebody who's actively engaged in a social enterprise, or at least she was when I talked to her. I think she's now gone back to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But let's talk to Rebecca Stewart, who was behind Pomegranate Kitchen in Wellington, working with people from refugee backgrounds. And, but I, I do think that we can control the conversation, yeah. Because, you know, as I said, it's, uh, it's way more important to me that the cooks feel safe than, you know, we get a bit of extra publicity, yeah. So, and, you know, media's been pretty, pretty okay with that. Often what they'll do is they'll do a little bit, in, in a segment they might talk a little bit or they can talk to me about what's going on in those countries and then they'll cut to the cooks. So, yeah, so the, the, in effect the story's already being told, it's just that the cooks don't have to tell that story. Yeah. And it's a good news story. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of the segment of the conversation that we are kind of sitting in where it's like, it was difficult, you know, uh, when Trump came in and the Muslim ban and everything was going on, it was quite difficult to not speak to that um, because it was so, you know, obviously horrifying and unfair. Uh, but we kind of, uh, I guess we see that, yeah, that little segment that we occupy is about just keeping on showing stories of um, diversity and of inclusion and of, um, yeah, good news stories about what people from refugee background can bring. Um, 
so yeah, it hasn't always been easy, but I think but it's a really fun kind of segment to occupy because there are so many great stories. And there's other people who are telling the bad news stories. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the news. Uh, people like Changemakers and, you know, Murdoch from Doing Our Bit really kind of are, have a lot of nuance in their storytelling as well. So, yeah, we just kind of see ourselves as occupying this little corner of it. Is this focus something that you have to be signed up as a social enterprise to do or is it something that all businesses can do? And is it something that's done all over the world? Let's finish by hearing from Diane Holt. I mean, without a doubt, you know, we don't have three planets. And so the global north cannot continue to consume in the way that we do. But that's a separate discussion to whether the global south should be able to access certain resources. Um, Conflating the two, for me, is discriminatory because it says oh, well, we've been able to have all these things, but now we have the luxury of turning around and saying, oh, well, you know, actually, we need to be a bit more environmentally responsible and buy fair trade coffee and do the fight, you know, and, and not have a big fridge and not have this and not have that. Um, and But we're going to make sure that we do this by making sure that everybody is conscious of their climate impact. Well, yeah, but at the same time, you know, you can't then turn around to somebody that lives... In an in extreme poverty in a slumming a slumming Kibera and say well actually but you can't have a fridge because fridges you know like that's going to increase the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. There are actually some really interesting solutions emerging in the global south uh, that are leapfrogging um, a lot of what's happening in the global north. We're often trapped in in our kind of historical and embedded structures and and interests, particularly financial interests. But, you know, some of the incredible digital advances in the global south around money transfers and stuff, that's leapfrogged and the entire financial systems that we have, um, you know. So I think there are we it's not just a one way street. We need to also look at some of the things that are happening in the global south and say, what lessons can we learn from that? and What, what can we bring into our lifestyles to address that? Is sustainability as we know it a first world problem? Um, to some extent, possibly. Um, as in, it's it's obviously something in the in the first world, the global north, we talk about a lot, right? And it's something that's obviously on the politicians' agenda. Um, although, obviously, more recent events, such as obviously for me, Brexit of kind of overtaking the conversation. Um, But I do think sometimes we have the luxury of of being able to indulge in conversations around sustainability when in parts of the global south, it's about getting to the end of the day, getting to the end of the week, getting to the end of the month. And um, I'm not saying that isn't also the case in in the global north as well but um i think of it in terms of maslow's hierarchy of needs the vast majority in the global south of the kinds of initiatives that i see are focused in terms of development initiatives and sustainability initiatives are are focused around delivering on things at the bottom of maslow's hierarchy of needs basic shelter basic health care food things like that when we look at the global north Sometimes the sustainability type initiatives are focused more on the self-actualization 
elements of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Not always, and that doesn't mean that they're also not focused on the bottom of this Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So for those that don't know this, imagine a, a triangle, and at the bottom of the triangle is all the basic stuff that you need, and then at the top of the triangle is more your kind of self-actualization, being able to give free reign to your artistic expressions, all these kinds of more uh, kind of cognitive personal things. Um, at a very simplistic sense that kind of is how I, you might look at it so as you as you fulfill your basic needs you're able to it frees up your ability to focus on some of these more higher order needs let's call them um, whereas a lot of the stuff that's in the global south is about the bottom of that pyramid so you've been working on trying to understand the role of social enterprise mm -hmm. across Africa what can we learn? So I think of social enterprises not as social enterprises, but what I call hybrids. So when I talk about social enterprises, I'm talking about everything that has a social and or environmental mission at the heart of whatever it does, that has some element of trading, even if it's only a little tiny amount, um, but it still might have some donor funds. And that it is not profit maximising, i.e. that it sacrifices some element of profit in some way. And that might mean that it employs a group of people who uh, perhaps are less productive relatively than another group of people. Or that it doesn't, it reinvests its profits. It might be a pure non-profit or it might take some profit. But I don't make the distinction between a uh, saying social enterprises and non-profit. What they are is for purpose um mission driven and have non profit maximizing essentially which is a very broad church definition um so i look at those kinds of enterprises everything from the um the company in kenya that makes small cook stoves to use charcoal and charcoal based ovens that's more energy efficient than all the alternatives that has focused on um Having giving away seeds to grow your own locally uh, local trees as part of on your little shamba plot um, that also has um, a business model that helps women grow, have their own little bakeries which helps them lift themselves out of poverty but that's a for-profit hybrid business um, through to um, the kind of very traditional more western centric version of a social enterprise as a non-profit uh, enterprise business model that um, reinvests all its profits and so I yeah I look at all of those I look at the different types I look at the innovations that they have I, I visit some of the people that they work with I look at the impacts that they have um, so I'm just fascinated by that whole landscape of of these kinds of business-based um models that are aimed to help people develop in a sustainable, equitable way. So we've dived into the Sustainable Lens Archive, looking at people discussing business, not in terms of the responsibility of business, but looking at how business sits on that that threshold of profit and responsibility and how that is managed and to some extent communicated. 
We've heard from Oliver Milliner, Will Watterson, Daniel Kenny, Mike Sammons, Phil Osborne, Richard Hull and Roxanne Persuade. See my notes here. It also said social purpose literacy versus intent. That's something I'm going to look up. Rebecca Stewart and Diane Holt. As always, you can find the whole shows of those people on sustainablelens.org. We're going out to change by Nottingham band Fat Digester. That was Sustainable Lens. I'm Samuel Mann. I hope you enjoyed the show.
Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark, and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. 
A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.